Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to originally episode 2171, The Hunter Gatherer Homestead, originally first published on February the 27th, 2018. Yeah, um, I know I was gone all last week. I, I get it. I'm sorry. I am not fully uh, recuperated from TSP 23, at least in the ability to put together a podcast for you with a live stream and all of that, uh, and new content. Got some great ideas, man. I mean, coming out of a workshop, your head swims no matter who you are. I think for me, it really swims because I get to talk to so many of you guys. And so I have tremendous number of new topics that will be coming up. But I thought this would be a good day for a rewind. Tomorrow I'll be doing a live stream with Nicole Sauce and John Willis. There's a good chance that will be tomorrow's episode of the podcast as well. Um, we do that every first Tuesday. Of course, this is the second Tuesday, and it's the second Tuesday. And so be it, because last Tuesday we were actively engaged in getting ready for the workshop. Anyway, um, I did want to give you a couple announcements in this uh, intro uh, with some new content. Number one being, I have begun doing the Friday flashbacks uh, every Friday. So it's four new shows a week plus a Friday flashback. I deeply encourage you, uh, if you're a regular listener all five days, to continue listening on Fridays. If I didn't think it was worth doing, I wouldn't be putting them out. There is so much in our old interviews, and I've rewound maybe two or three of them, like you know, doing a rewind like I'm today. I'll usually do standalone shows for it. It just seemed to work better for me at the time. Uh, but by going back in and harvesting the interviews, it's made me able to completely uh, process the methodology behind producing them, and I can produce them very, very quickly that way. I'm not recording these new introductions and things like that. I'm I've got a pre-designed uh, intro and exit. And I'm just chopping off the uh, commercial off the front end and back end if it's there as well and letting them roll. And so far, the feedback on the first two has been great. Uh, I will be using some time this week to get the next quarter's worth, so three months' worth of them done because I can, in fact, do them so quickly. It will free me up to do a lot of other things, uh, including some of the stuff you guys have been asking for, and we'll just let that ride as it is for today. The next thing I want to do is tell you about the item of the day-to-day, even though we're not doing a brand new episode. Um, this weekend was incredible. All the people that were here talking to so many people, but no less than seven individuals, and it could be more, but in you know, I know it's at least seven people came up to me and said the uh, the metal raised garden beds that I've recommended, they've bought them, uh, some people have plans for them, most of the people have already have them installed uh, and are beginning to build them out, and everybody was happy. And uh, there's a bonus structure in place for high-level producers at Amazon uh, for the next few months, and I'm trying to maximize that, and it's based on hitting certain metrics. So I thought, well, I'll run them again today. Well, when I went to pull them up, not only were they not on sale, uh, they're sold out. So apparently um, the TSP effect is real, and we've sold them out. So I started looking for some replacements. I will tell you that the uh, the free zone ones that, that we've been selling, they are the number four by by total quantity, like just total raw quantity item 
of the year, in spite of the fact that I didn't bring them to you until mid-August. Right, so that says something uh, with no complaints and nothing but positive feedback. Uh, the other thing I'll tell you, I mean, by total dollars, number one item of the year, in spite of the fact. So clearly, there's a place for these types of products, and there's a niche. Now, I picked that model because of the dimensions and the build materials and the modularity, and I was like, this looks like a good product, and the price seemed really fair. So here's the other side of that. I don't think you can screw up a galvanized raised metal bed unless you try really hard. I mean, this is not a complicated product to build. It's basically a stock tank without a bottom. It's a very standard material. You know, thousands and thousands of companies work with it. So I went out and looked at it. Here's what I found for you guys. I found a uh, product uh, that is either a better deal or as good a deal, I guess, depending on how you look at it. They go together a little bit differently. If you read the write-up, you can see what I mean about how they go to bed a little, uh, how they go together a little bit differently. Basically, you'll spend less time tightening screws and bolts. The big difference, though, they're only a foot deep. So the other ones were eight feet long, four feet wide, and two feet deep. These are eight by four by one. Now, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Many of you will actually find that to be beneficial as, you know, if you have to acquire fill for these things, it can be relatively expensive. And a one-foot deep raised bed is, you know, perfect for most applications. I loved when I found the other ones at two feet because that's how high I build my own beds because generally it keeps, generally, right, it keeps ducks out of them. Ducks generally don't go into beds that are two, two feet high. They don't really spend a lot of time jumping up into one-foot-high beds, but it's a lot easier on them. So if you have ducks, you know, like that might be something to take into consideration. Uh, but less fill. But the deal is you get a two-pack for 135 bucks. I guess if you wanted them two feet tall, you could stack them. I, I don't think I would do that, though. I'd wait for the other ones to come back and stock or find a different uh, product if you want to have them two feet tall. But to get two for 135 bucks, I mean, that's, that's a deal, guys. That's a deal. And again, I just don't think that this is an easy product to screw up. They have a 4.6 star rating with over 175 reviews. That makes me comfortable representing uh, this company. I also checked out their store. Their products are designed to be modular, which even means the, this product could be put together in a different shape or configuration. And I'll allow you to go ahead and check out uh, the video link that I included to learn more about that or check out uh, their full store. Um, one more thing before I move on from this. With these uh, galvanized raised metal beds, no, no matter who you buy them from, almost every company that makes them, it is a modular product just by looking at the way that it was designed. Like You can just tell this is modular, right? It has. There's probably only three different panels, and then you create a shape that's standard, and you include the number of each of the three panels. It might even be two. I think it's two. Then you got a curved and a straight. That's it. Um, so due to that, they all offer a lot of different kind of like dimensional platforms. One to two feet deep, three foot wide, two foot wide. You get it. Like it just keeps going on from there. I'd say there's three total panels in most of these systems. But when you switch from one to another, like some of them even have them coated in colors, make sure that you're looking at the dimensions and because I was looking today and I'm like, man, that's a really good deal. It turned out, well, they were only four feet long by two foot wide. 
So they were half the square footage of one of these. So, of course, they cost less. Also, if you want one of these, they will sell them as a single, and they're like sixty-seven fifty. So you only save a couple bucks uh, per unit by buying them in pairs. So I think they would make good pairs. Uh, I know a lot of people are planning on using uh, cattle panels with them. I think that's a great idea. I will tell you, you'll need to provide some additional support if you only come up a foot on a cattle panel, though, where it meets the ground. Um, there's plenty of ways to figure out how to do that. I just wanted to point that out. But I, I, I will tell you, I wouldn't worry about weight. Like, there's plenty of weight there to maintain these beds in place uh, once they're full. No problem with whatsoever with that. So that's a little bit long on that, but I just think this is... This is a product that will fit well with today's Rewind. Because what we're talking about today is the hunter-gatherer lifestyle on your own property. And you might think, Jack, I don't have enough space to be a hunter-gatherer on my own property. That's for somebody with like 40 acres and like 35 of its woodlands. Uh, no, actually, it's, it, it's not. Not the way that I did this episode, the perspective I came from. I live a lot like a hunter-gatherer here on a daily basis during the peak of the growing season. I walk around and I pick from various things that are available, uh, whether that be in the garden, whether it be in one of the food forests, one of the other systems, one of the aquaponic systems. I don't grow huge amounts of specific crops, creating very large harvests all at one time. We tend to get like a bunch of tomatoes or a bunch of peppers at one time here and there, but overall we kind of stretch things out throughout the year. It, it's far less labor-intensive, uh, it definitely fits in with permaculture design and succession planning and high-density planning along with heavy diversity of plants. It fits in with perennials. They come in at different seasons. It's just a really cool way to do things. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and rewind back to February the 27th, 2018, the Hunter-Gatherer Homestead. And whether it's the show with John and Nicole or a separate show, I will be back with something brand new for you guys tomorrow. All right, so let's get into the main topic of today's show, which again is the hunter-gatherer homestead. Um, I, I think that a lot of people, when they hear hunter-gatherer, they, they, they you know think of foraging and hunting and things like that, because hunter-gatherer, right? It makes sense. And we'll talk a little bit about that today and where it fits into all this, but it's not the main topic. I'm... I'm talking about hunting and gathering like behavior on your own own homestead. Like I said in the intro, be it a thousand acres or a thousand square feet, we can emulate this behavior. The term hunter gatherer is tossed around a lot, but we seldom look at the actual lifestyle of such people. What is it composed of? Will such people do what, what such people do is they will you know, gather or grow in some kind of main crop, a survival ration. Uh, something you can store long-term for when time's getting lean. But in general, hunter-gatherers live as omnivorous human grazers. What does that mean? It means that they eat meat and vegetables, right? And they take as much as they need as they go. And... and if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. One of the, the, the greatest hunter-gatherer societies of all time was the Native American various tribes prior to the settlement of North America by Westerners, uh, specifically before we got here at all and, and caused disease and pestilence and things like by just showing up. Um, there were tens of millions of Native people living in North and South America 
but they had almost no negative impact on game. Now, I'm not saying they never did. Way, way back, going back to like Paleolithic era, there's a lot of game that we believe was actually hunted out of existence. And there was also an almost complete wiping out of the human population in a bottleneck there as well. But by the time we're talking, you know, a thousand years ago, uh, there was a, a real homeostasis between human beings and the animals and the plant species that they were living with as a horticultural society. They were actually farming the woods in many instances. And they were also doing regular agriculture. We have good records of that too. But it was they were doing a lot of basically tending of wild species that they would then harvest. But they took what they needed as they needed it. And, and then again, set aside some of that long-term storable for those lean periods. And I'll tell you a secret. They didn't do it because of the the mystique about the noble savage and their respect for the earth and, and this, you know, the great spirit and everything. They did it mainly for convenience. And you say, well, how would you know? Just think about it logically. Let's say you had a, a piece of property, a fairly large piece of property, big enough that you could just kind of leave your cattle alone. You had 12 cattle on your land, and your land could feed them. You never had to provide them food because that's the closest thing to you know buffalo, let's say, that you, you could get. And you decide that you don't have enough meat anymore and you need some cow to eat. How many cows are you going to kill? Especially you're not selling them. You're just feeding yourself and your family. Well, you're going to kill one cow. You're going to kill one cow. Because it's a lot of work to go kill all 12 cows and then you have no cows left. So there's some conservation there too, but it's also like, it doesn't make sense. One cow is a lot of freaking meat. So why would you go kill half of the cows, or even two of the cows? If you had an animal on your homestead that was a little bit smaller of an animal, let's say a goat or a sheep, and you didn't have an immediate way to deal with all of that cow meat, you'd probably kill the sheep or the deer or the rabbit or the chicken before you'd kill the cow. You'd wait for a strategic time to kill the cow, when it made the most sense, especially if you had a very large family or maybe a group of multiple families living on one piece of land, you would time it out to when it made sense, when people were available to process the large amount of meat and to make sure that it got stored properly. And throughout the rest of the year, you would kind of live off a little bit at a time. You would take the smallest thing that you could. And this is the lifestyle of the hunter-gatherer that ain't what we've been taught on TV, folks. It really isn't. We, we've been taught that the hunter-gatherer was out there hunting every day, you know, and, and running all over the place in an incredible shape. And they were in great shape because of their diet. But the, 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 the typical life of a hunter-gatherer, and we have, you know, some of these peoples have not been completely pushed out of existence, and we have had people that went and lived with them. And one of the things I always say is they are... They are shocked at the amount of leisure in the lives of these people. If they're left alone, if modern society doesn't go in and try to inject quote-unquote help, then these people spend an awful lot of time laying around doing nothing. Yet they don't get fat because they're living on mostly a vegetarian and meat-based diet. Heavy in organ meats. If they're anywhere where there's shellfish and things like that, heavy in shellfish. High in cholesterol. I mean, really, that's how they live. But they don't, they don't do a lot unless there's a reason for it. 
So they don't go out and strip the forest bare, not only because they know it's a bad thing to do and that they won't have anything next week, but also because, in some levels, they're lazy. They're lazy in the best, most productive way possible. If I've done enough work to feed myself for today, and whatever needs to be done to make sure in the, the period of Darth, because almost all places have periods of Darth, where there's, not, there's a shortage, that I've done a little bit, I've lived like a grasshopper, but I did a little bit of anting today, and I do a little bit of anting tomorrow and a little bit of anting the next day, then by the time we get to the Darth, we'll have plenty put away, and we'll go on about our lives. And why would I go out and continue to work for no good reason? This is how hunter-gatherers live. You know, they, we might, somebody needs a new spear point or something like that. So, you know, just a flint napper might work on it. We got plenty of time to do it. He's not trying to make a hundred of them to make a quota for the factory that are going to sell off to the military. Just, you know, I need to get one of these done in the next week or so, and I'll play with it for 15 minutes a day. It gives me something to do while we sit around the fire and tell stories and sing songs. This is the actual life of a hunter-gatherer. That doesn't mean they never had hardships. But if you want to look at the places where the hunter-gatherer has, has persisted, it's primarily the tropics. And the reason that's the case is they, it has the briefest, if any, period of Darth. The way that we were able to conquer the Native American peoples here was we slaughtered the buffalo. And we slaughtered a lot of the other game, too, till there was a shortage of it. And that increased the period of Darth for these peoples. And it made them conquerable. Until that point, they were largely unconquerable. Well, if you go into something like a rainforest, unless you clear-cut it, there's always something for the person that grew up there that's enough for today. And that's how these societies lived. So, you know, how does this apply to homesteading on your 1,500-square-foot urban homestead or your three-acre, you know, just outside of the urban area homestead or even your 1,000-acre homestead? Well, your 1,000-acre homestead, you should be able to figure that out. I'm going to focus more on people that live on smaller tracts of land, let's say five acres and under, down to a few thousand square feet today. Well, What we have to realize is that there are key tenets to this lifestyle, and then we can think about how we can emulate that. So there really probably should be some main crops or off-site foraging in time of plenty. So here's a couple examples of what I mean by this. As growing up as a child, we had deer season. Now, a deer is nowhere near as much meat as people that have never shot one think it is. But it's a significant amount of meat, especially when you're talking to northeastern deer. You're talking animals that are, you know, 200, 220 pounds on the hoof uh, versus, you know, deer down here will go 100, 110 pounds. Uh, so, I mean, they are larger body deer. It's still not a huge amount of meat. But if you had a family with, you know, an uncle and a father and a mother and a granddad, and the whole family kind of shared, very hunter-gatherer, like even though they didn't completely cohabitate, they shared a lot of resources, and everybody got a deer during deer season. And my little sister didn't want to go hunting, well, she got her ass a hunting license, she went to 
upon her education so that she could get a tag and maybe uncle or brother or dad shot her deer for her while she slept in the truck, but that deer went back to the lotter as well. That was a harvest of protein in time of plenty. Now, it's kind of an artificial government-created time of plenty because they created a season around your right to harvest game, but people adapt, and that's what we did there. Another example would be early in the fall, we would forage for mushrooms. And the holy grail of mushrooms in that world is known as mataki, also known as hen of the woods, also known as the ram's head mushroom. These can be, you know, four or five pounds. They can be 15, 20 pounds of mushrooms in one. And there were hunting grounds that we knew to go to for them. And <clears throat> if you cut them off at the base and they grow on the, near the base of an oak tree, not usually on the tree itself, on the ground next to an oak tree, Uh, specifically white oak being the number one oak, uh, generally speaking, if you go back there, you will find another one next year. And you could go out and in a very short period of time come home with 40, 50, 60 pounds of mushrooms. And we would can them, we would dehydrate them, what have you. That was a time of plenty. In the spring, we would have things like uh, blueberries. And we would get big parties of people together and go collect blueberries and then at the end of the collection day and it was like a big fun party we'd you know figure out well here's how many gallons of blueberries here's how many families are here everybody gets three gallons of blueberries to take home freeze them make them into liqueur or mead i mean it was you know that time let's collect the bounty when it's there and at the same time we created abundance in our gardens with main crops. One of our main crops when I was growing up as a kid was corn. We would grow, I mean, we grew a lot, like I'm going to talk about here in a minute, but we did grow, you know, eight rows, 50 foot long, of silver queen corn. And it would get to a certain point where it was fresh and we'd start eating it. But we'd get to a point where, like, it's going to start not being so good anymore if we let it go any further. And we would harvest it. The main reason we, we, we stored that was through freezing it. We would blanch and freeze it. We also grew cucumbers as a main crop, and my grandmother would put away, you know, quarts upon quarts of pickles. So some of the stuff was done with the prepper kind of mindset of abundance. The problem that I see is that in in, in modern homesteading, because people didn't in, in general grow up with it, and they get into this thing and they start looking online and they learn about canning and dehydrating, and they look at farms and they think that this is the way everything should be. Everything should be grown in rows, and everything should be grown in large numbers, and everything should be put away. Well, how do you how do you feed yourself through the time of abundance then? If you're growing everything for like mass harvest, see what I'm saying? So, most of the time, we need to feed ourselves and eat off of our properties like a grazer. A little bit of this, and a little bit of that. So... We want to produce vegetables, fruits, and proteins on our homestead in a lot of variety and a lot of different ways that kind of trickle in throughout the whole year. If you can eat something off your property four days a week, you're doing good. If you can eat something off your property seven days a week, you're kicking ass. And this is the thing. You can do that. It's a, it's a much better goal then I want to produce 50% of my food. 
if you if you follow this path, you'll get to that type of a level eventually if it's what you really want to do and if it fits your lifestyle and if it's reasonable for you with your land, in your climate, with the time you have available. But if we start, first make the goal, like, I want to eat something off my property three days a week. So if you throw microgreens in the mix, you can do that. I mean, immediately. Like, you can start doing that ten days from now. But even with just planting herbs, cultivating mushrooms, getting some chickens or some quail or some ducks, and starting to use eggs off of your property, etc., you can get to you know a three-day-a-week and then a four-day-a-week and then a five-day-a-week and a seven-day-a-week. And, and when you start thinking about it from a grazer standpoint... If I want to make sure that I, I use something off my homestead today, we're not going to cook any eggs or anything like that, and I'm not going to go in the freezer and pull out a quail or a tilapia that grew in one of my systems, and I just want to make sure that today I use something on my property, well, I can go out to one of my beds, grab a handful of mint, and make tea with it this morning. Now I've consumed something from my property this day. And when you do that, it's a weird thing. It's almost like metaphysical or spiritual, but it's not. It's just a human adaptation. But you begin to bond with the property. And you begin to be a better observer of things on the property. You begin to see opportunities for the property. And I'll tell you what this is. We are, as a species, hunter-gatherers. No matter what technology has tried to change us into, from an evolutionary standpoint, As a biological life form on planet Earth, we are hunter-gatherers. That's what we are. We are tool makers. We understand how to make traps. We understand how to make weapons. We understand how to run a deer off a cliff if we don't have a gun. We're scavengers. We'll, we, I mean, as, as a species, part of what made us kind of break and begin to, to evolve at a higher level was Our early bands began to follow the predators that consumed the game that they couldn't consume. And instead of trying to chase them off and getting killed by a big cat, they waited until the cat was pretty much done with most of it and went and broke open giant femur bones and ate the marrow out of it. This is, this is intrinsically what we are. And there's a lot of things that we are. We are, we are both predator and prey. I've talked about it before. This is why when you're in a deer stand, especially a bow hunter, you hear nothing, you see nothing, you smell nothing, there's no reason for you to know. And the hair on the back of your neck and your arm goes up and you know there's a deer there. You just know. And a couple seconds later you hear ch -ch -ch, that little footprints in the in the in the leaves. And you know he's there. And sooner or later you see him. Because you're becoming in touch with what you are. Well when you start cultivating your land and not just like backbreaking physical labor garden, but beginning to let go, oh, there's a little space there. Rosemary would grow in this space. It's hot and it's dry, but it gets enough irrigation that it won't die. And I'm going to put a rosemary bush there. You just put a rosemary bush there. And the next time you're cooking lamb, you go, you know what? Rosemary really goes good with lamb. And you go out and grab a sprig off of it. And then you say to yourself, you know what? Rosemary is one of those herbs that actually seems to be better for cooking when it's a dried herb. So you, you prune a little bit of it and you hang it up and you let it dry and you shake the needles off into a jar and you put that on your thing. And when you reach up to your cabinet and pull out that dried herb you could have bought a store, you know that it's from a bush that's right outside your window. And when you need some basil and it's summertime and the basil's in bloom out and you just go out and grab some leaves and you, you maybe you go, you know, sage and basil would go good with this. So you grab a sage leaf off of the sage bush that you planted near the rosemary bush because they have common 
you know, common uh, uh, habitat needs. And you chop that up, and then you cook with it. And you've just taken that little bit today. That's all you've done today is taking those, that, those few fresh herbs. You begin to become more of what you really are, that true hunter-gatherer that's in you. And you begin to see your land, whether, again, even if it's only a couple thousand square feet, as somewhat sacred. Because early peoples and, and hunter-gatherers say, do see the land as sacred because it is everything to them. They're not like the the way the what well, I don't mean to take anything away from them. They're the way the conservationists try to make them out, like you know that they're worried about the bullshit that the eco weenies were. No, they just understand this is my land. This is the land, even if it's not theirs that they own, that I steward this land. That my children are going to eat from that stream. I can't piss in it. They get that, and you begin to get that. And I know a lot of people say, well, intellectually you already get that. No, but you begin to get that at a at a level that's hard to explain until you do it. And to do this, we want to produce vegetables, fruits, and proteins on the land. And, and the way that we, we approach that is a little bit of perennial fruit, some vegetables and herbs, even in small numbers. And as far as protein, some people are like, well, I, I, I can't raise livestock. Well, you know, again, you can do something as simple as quail, and then quail produce eggs, and even if you're not butchering quail... You have a protein source. But I think to really get to where you, you want to be, you, you, you kind of want a protein source. If you have a, you know, a few acres or more and you have a wood lot, this could be as simple as something as setting up some habitat that encourages you know, something like squirrels and harvesting a certain number of squirrels a year off your property. I mean, a squirrel is a pretty good meal for one person as the protein component. So if you have a family of two... And you just set things up to where you can harvest, let's say, 24 squirrels a year. That's 12 weeks of, you know, one meal a week of protein off the property. And there's other ways that we can do protein on property, but we need to expand our, our, our mind a bit with this. Um, with a simple aquaponic system, we can produce fish. And as I've said, people that think you're going to produce like massive amounts of fish are, are deluding themselves. But a, single 330-gallon IBC-based aquaponics system that you stock with bluegills from a local pond, and you put a few hundred of them in there, and you just make a deal with yourself. Since these fish are free and abundant, I'm going to keep records of everyone that dies and I turn into a fertilizer spike and every one that I harvest. And while I can't, you know, like in the middle of winter, it might be hard to get some, but, I'm, you know, at certain times of year, I'm going to make that my collection period. And if I've eaten 40 fish out of this system, I'm going to get 40 fish to replace it with. And then they're there, and then I can eat them in that grazing mentality. And if I can keep a few hundred of them on site, I can eat a hundred of them a year. If it's one per person in a two-person household, that's one meal a freaking year. Well, you missed two. You probably were on vacation. And, and we, we need to think this way. This little bit of this, and a little bit of that, and a little bit of this. Because this is how hunter-gatherers work. If they, you know, if they go out that day into the forest, and they're looking for protein, and they're in the tropics, and there's a couple big iguanas in a tree, they're eating iguana that night. If it's a monkey, they're eating monkey. If it's Kuda Monday, they're eating Kuda Monday. You don't know what Kuda Monday is, you're missing out. Right? But in, you know, in our, our, our world, here in North America, you know, don't think that... Uh, the Native Americans turned up their nose at something like possum. 
or a raccoon. And if you start thinking about like we had somebody on recently talking about trapping, if we start throwing a little bit of these things into it, and a little like like salt and pepper, you know, on a bigger level, a little bit of this, a dash of that, you start to take more and more into your control about what you eat. Another thing we learn from these people, don't work harder than you have to. I see people that are killing themselves to grow tomatoes. If it's that hard to grow tomatoes where you are, grow tomatillos. I'm dead serious. Like, it's hard as hell to grow tomatoes here. We get blight, so we plant some. We get tomatoes off them until they die from the blight or until it's not worth it anymore. We cut a clone off of it where it's still good. We reclone that. And if it produces, produces, if it's done and done, grow tomatillos. It's, it's just a much simpler way to live instead of fighting against it. And only do a little bit every day. And all of a sudden, again, it starts being easy. It becomes a natural thing, which is what it should be. And only harvest or create large harvests that makes sense. So if you're going to grow a lot of something and you don't have a means to save it or it's not something your family's really going to use, don't grow it unless there's some other outlet for it. Like it could be used as feed. If you're growing feed for your own livestock, I think that's fantastic. But if you're growing a huge amount of cucumbers, because you can and they're easy, but nobody in your family really likes pickles, you're probably doing it wrong. They don't dehydrate well. There ain't much you can do with them other than eat them or pickle them. They don't really preserve any way that I know of. I love the cucumber meat's pretty good, but how many cucumbers do you need to make a bunch of meat? Not a lot. Um, so you, 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 you then, if you're in that situation where you like nobody really likes pickles, then you need one or two cucumber plants. And through the, the season the cucumbers grow, you'll hardly be able to keep up with them. You'll be making cucumber water. So don't go creating work for yourself. Don't go out and put in a cornfield. If nobody in the house eats corn, or you have no way to store it. Same thing with like wheat or any kind of a grain. I mean, they're great storage, uh, Depositories of calories. They, they really are. But if you don't have a way to use them, you know, think smarter. I grow red, uh, red and purple Japanese sweet potatoes. We store them in the dirt. We, we eat the greens all year in a foraging stance. And as they get to the point where the greens die back, your first frost, we start pulling tubers out. By the time we get to spring, we're out of them. But we did no real work. So only create those large harvests where they make sense. Don't work harder in your life. You have to. Some keys to those lifestyle. First, I want to point out something that should be obvious if you've listened to me for a long time. This is basic permaculture design. If you think about permaculture has a zone-based system, and that's zone zero through five. A lot of teachers don't teach zone zero, and we won't talk about it much today. But zone zero is your, your domicile, your home. It's... The place that you live, that you reside, it may even be parts of your front or back porch or something like that. But it's the, the, the living quarters. And then zone one is once you're out of the living quarters, places that you will probably step foot on at least once a day. Zone two is a little bit further out. Maybe it's something you set foot on a few times a week. Just because you exist, you will step foot on that area. Then you move out to like zone three. And zone three is, you know, maybe it's something that you do weekly maintenance on. Zone four is your larger 
foodscapes, and forestry. And then zone 5 is basically the land you leave as wilderness. And not every design will have every zone. When we look at you know a, a quarter acre um, residential lot, you may not have all of those zones. You might not have a wilderness. Though a lot of people will put aside a little area, a little token area, Do we just throw some, you know, aggressive growing perennial herbs and flowers in and we just kind of let it go messy? So it's a habitat for pollinators. It's not really a wilderness zone, though. And, you know, your, your zone four that would typically be like food forestry might collapse more into a zone two in an urban environment. And a zone three might be that, you know, when I was a kid, those rows of corn. So that, that zone three is that larger, long-duration production system. Zone three, we might create virtual zones for ourselves. If we're hunters, that, that larger zone is really the zone five wilderness, but we turn it into a zone three harvest when we go out and bring in that big bunch of ram's head that used to fill up the back of a pickup truck. It's that type of thing. It's that type of design. So if you understand basic zone-based permaculture design, this stuff will come really, really easy. Some other keys. Plant and high density. Plant and overplant. And don't think you've planted too much until something starts to have a problem, and then harvest that sucker and eat it, and it'll make room for something else. So plant in high density. And plant in heavy diversity. Don't plant 50 of one type of pepper. You know, plant 50 pepper plants that are 20 varieties, if you can, or at least four or five. Because they'll, they'll, you'll, you'll find what grows really well on your property. You'll find the areas on your property that they grow really well, and there'll be something for you daily. That's a big part of it. So plant in a heavy diversity and practice succession planting. Long before this plant's done, but it's starting to kind of head toward true maturity and being done, Right at the base of it, plant something new. Especially a plant that's actually going to go away. Right now in some of my wicking beds, I have a whole bunch of broccoli planted. You know why? If we get a late spring frost, it's not going to care. It's going to grow. It's going to produce a bunch of heads of broccoli. I'm going to harvest them as they come on. As I harvest them, they're going to start setting up shoots. And as we, as we get closer and closer to where a lot of the other things like peppers and, and more warm season vegetation will grow... Then, then what I'm going to do is start pruning out the leaves of that broccoli to take the last of the shoots. And as we get to a certain point and that new summer plant is ready to take over, I'm just going to go in there with a knife and I'm going to cut that broccoli plant right off at, at the soil level. And when I do that and cut that plant off at the soil level, I'm going to take it, maybe chop it up in a few pieces, and I'm going to throw it in the compost bin with my chickens and let them process it from there. And there's almost no work. And all of a sudden, we move into another plant. By the way, before I go on, that racket, that, 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 that was my granddaughter. Um, they're, my, my wife goes every day to pick up my grandson from the uh, school. And uh, when she does, she sends Tegan in here to tell me goodbye. So the door was shut. So as soon as she told her that we were leaving, she started running down the hallway going, bye, bye. Anyway, uh, just a real-world podcasting, right? Um, and, I, you know, I've actually heard from a couple people that complain about the fact that they hear my grandkids occasionally in the background of the show. You know what you can do? You could, you could figure out what you could do, really. Anyway, um, so, you know, we want to plant that high-density, heavy diversity and use that succession planting. And like I said, it's, it's almost no work if you do it that way. So 
I, I remember being a kid, and in our garden that I, I did with my grandparents, we would have, I believe if I remember right, it was in the neighborhood of 40 broccoli plants and 40 cauliflower plants. And they would all be planted at the exact same time. They were all planted in the same row. They were all had the same fertility regime. So they all would come to produce a, a full-size head of broccoli about the same time. Now, this isn't exactly a, a bad thing, because what would happen is I'd go down there and cut all those heads of broccoli. And we would probably eat a little bit of that broccoli, but most of it my grandmother would blanch and freeze. And then it would start doing the shoot thing. When you got 40 plants sending up shoots, we're pretty much eating broccoli every other or third day, all the way into late summer in that climate. Here it's not happening. Right here, you're going to do that for a little bit, and then the heat's going to take over, and that's when I'm going to whack it out of, the, out of the, the way. But there is a certain amount of work to that many plants planted in a straight row, etc. But with a you know, half a dozen in this bed and a half a dozen in that bed and a half a dozen over here, even though they're planted all about the same time, they're going to come to maturity at different times, and by planting at higher densities, some are going to kind of crowd out others until they're cut back. And they're going to come in. So what's going to happen is our, our head harvest of broccoli this spring will be much more spread out than my grandmother's was. And then we'll get that kind of that flow, that residual flow of those, those, um, those shoots. But, you know, we'll eat broccoli a couple times, three times, four times, probably four times a week when they first starts coming. And then as we go down to shoots and we start figuring out when each plant's going away, you know, two or three times a week into the spring and early summer, and then we probably won't eat much broccoli anymore. You know, maybe we'll blanch and freeze a little bit of it, but how long does it take when it's time for dinner tonight and we say, you know what, broccoli's in season right now. Let me hunter-gather forage my little butt out the door over to the wicking bed that I just built on my pond, which is about 65 feet from my back door. Take my knife, cut that head of broccoli off, and walk back in the house with it. It's, in some ways, it's probably less work than most people have to do to dig shit out of their refrigerator get the broccoli that's in the back of the drawer. And then when that plant, when it's like, okay, well, it's about, these little pepper plants, or it's about time for them to go in, I'm just going to tuck them right in between the broccoli plants. And they don't grow that fast in the beginning anyway, so the fact that broccoli shades them out a bit is not really a big deal. In fact, it'll put a little bit of lift under their ass to reach for the stars, reach for the sun. And then, okay, well, you know, those pepper plants are looking pretty good. Broccoli's not producing anymore. You know, those six plants that are in that bed, whack, 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 in with the chickens. I'm not turning compost. I'm lazy. I'm a hunter-gatherer. You see, this is this is how this works. And, and, and to, to me, again, I do think you need to develop some protein source. And I'm going to tell you, if you can, the best, especially beginner's protein source in your life is egg-laying chickens. Because the chickens don't just give you eggs. They do the work that we just talked about. They make your compost. You don't get out there with a shovel or a pitchfork and turn it. You throw it into a bin. They go in there and they process it. You do that until that bin is damn near full. You take that bin and put it somewhere away from the chickens. Throw a little bit of straw or carbon on top of it. You give them a new bin. You start filling it up. About the time that second bin is full and you move it to where your first bin is, your first bin is ready to use as compost. You walk right back around where your chickens live and your beds are, and you sprinkle it around your plants, and then you throw that empty bin back on the ground next to your chickens and start throwing your waste in it. 
This is this is hunter gatherer mentality. I'm not going to do a damn thing I don't have to do. I'm going to do a little bit of anting and a whole bunch of grasshoppering every day. It's just a little bit of forethought to make sure when there's something not there that I have something to fill the gap. And this is the way humans live for tens of thousands, if not, depending on who you listen to, hundreds of thousands of years. Relatively happily, and there was conflict and fighting, but relatively little warfare. I don't have time to fight a war. I'm too busy laying on my ass, singing songs, telling stories, picking some shit up off of the ground to eat, grabbing a couple of mushrooms and killing a deer. Where the hell in this do I have time to go out and wage war on somebody else? I mean, really, this is ha- and this is why we are in such conflict in our lives today, because we live so unnatural. This is about bringing a little bit of it back into your life. But that chicken is the best protein source, and it's not to eat chicken meat. It is to eat chicken eggs. And a chicken can come into an ecosystem with almost no calcium in it, be fed very little calcium, and produce calcium in the form of eggshells. So it's almost magical. Now, since there's a biochemical way that this occurs, it's not, but it's almost For all intents and purposes, it kind of is. And that chicken is the workhorse. And even if it's a little bitty chicken, like little uh, bantams or something like that, and if you can have a rooster with your flock, even better. And if you can have a rooster with your flock, you can have eggs. If you can have eggs with broody chickens, you can let them hatch some chickens. And just in culling, you can eat meals. Now, if you're doing a chicken that makes a good egg layer... You are not going to have a chicken that makes a fantastic meat chicken. I'm sorry. The two do not exist together. We have bred meat chickens to be meat chickens. And we have bred egg layers to be egg layers. But our grandparents ate chicken all the time that was basically egg-laying chicken. And what they really did is they ate roosters. And that means that we might not be able to have that big, plump chicken come off of our, our yard, but we can produce something that's got every damn bit as meat, much meat in it as a pheasant. And people work their ass off to shoot one or two pheasants. I mean, it amazes me when I think about when I was a kid. And I, it is fun, and I'll still do it, but when I really think about like pheasant shit, how about rough grouse? I remember one day we had to put 11 miles on between my uncle and I. And I shot my first grouse at by almost the end of that day. I still remember I was 14 years old, and I think he had gotten a shot and missed, and I had gotten a shot and missed. Because if you've never hunted grouse, you have no idea what you're talking about, the most acrobatic bird you'll ever shoot at in the woods. And we ended up toward the end of the day, stopping, went down one old strip mine, stripping hole, And the dog lights up, and knows, and we, and the bird was sitting in a tree. And I don't shoot birds out of trees. I'm not that much a hunter-gatherer, right? Because a hunter-gatherer would have shot that bitch out of the tree. And the dog lights off on the bird, and the bird comes around and breaks out behind me. And I spun around and dropped that freaking bird. I mean, that was that bird was moving like a missile. And I dropped his ass stone dead. The dog ran over and got him and brought him to me. I was happy as hell. Yeah, I was happy as hell, but when it comes down to a hunter-gatherer, what did I have? I had a two-pound bird that I walked 11 miles for. The calorie math does not work there. 
And and so some people will put down what you can produce in, in, in you know cold chickens or whatever. That's a hell of a lot more meat than you get off a of grouse. Quail are a great protein source too, though, man. I think that like if you want to produce meat, the quail is the quintessential animal. Little rack system can produce you a couple meals a week every freaking day. With and it's very hunter gatherish because it's not a lot of work. We can automate the water, fill it up once a week, check on them daily, pick up the eggs, put a couple in the brooder, boom, we got a protein source. But develop a protein source. And again, uh, I know I'm well known for ducks, and I love ducks, and the ducks are leaving, and I kind of feel bad about that. And there might be a couple ducks living in the aviary, uh, but when it comes to processing compost for the urban homesteader, I think that the chicken is the way to go. A duck, man, you let ducks run around your backyard, you'll have one muddy backyard. You got to have enough space to accommodate their needs. Otherwise, they're great animals, um, but they will not compost the way a chicken will. So, anyway, um, next, include perennials. I think that's obvious, but it needs to be said. Wherever you can, put a grapevine on that fence, and then you have an annual harvest of grapes. And since it doesn't produce grapes year-round, plant a whole bunch of pole beans that go up where that grapevine is and interact with that, and now you got a pole bean source. Plus, you're attracting pollinators in if you use something like scarlet runner and hummingbirds. If you use something like scarlet, with those, scarlet runner with those big, beautiful Uh, flowers on them. But you got to put some perennials into your system. Uh, if you have to do it in containers, do it in containers. Probably the best container perennial you can grow is blueberries because you can get that perfect acidic soil mix. It's completely controlled in that, that container, what have you. And now you've got another perennial. So, so get perennials into the system. Next, take on the mindset of doing a little bit every day. Walk your property every day. When you see a weed, pull it out. If you if you do that every day, weeding's almost no work. If you do it every two weeks, weeding's quite a bit of work. If you do it once a month, weeding is a nightmare. But especially if you have chickens, weeds are chicken food. They'll eat it. Now make sure you're not giving them toxic stuff. But you know what? If they're fed well, they're not going to eat toxic shit anyway. But if if you take a walk out to the chickens every day, make damn sure we have things growing between us and where the chickens live. If we have things growing that we can eat and use and maintain, and even if it's just herbs or perennial flowers or things like that for beauty, if we have gardens, because gardens can be a little two foot by two foot square, but if we have our gardens on the path to where our chickens live, and we go out in the morning to let them out, pick up a couple eggs, and dump off our compost from the house, so we cook that night, we take all the scraps and put them in a little bowl. We don't need a special, expensive, carbon-filtered, non-stink, stainless steel thing from freaking Sharper Image or whatever, right? From the SkyMall catalog or whatever the hell like that with the replaceable... You, you, you got to go out to the chickens anyway. So we just take a, a bowl and throw it on the countertop, and when we cook that from that morning till that night, all the shit goes in the bowl. We're already carrying the bowl. We're walking out to the chickens. Hey, here's a weed. Hey, there's that weed's kind of small. And I know they like that weed. I'm going to let that weed go a couple more days. Oh, there's a weed. Oh, there's a weed. Oh, there's a weed. Weeds and and, and the scraps go right in the chicken uh, compost bin or the quail compost bin, and boom, they take care of it. We pick up our eggs, come back in the house, put the bowl back on the counter, make breakfast, throw the waste in the bowl. So this is 
Being is la- being proactive. I talk about proactive apathy. This is proactive laziness. And on that note, automate anything you can. If you can put a door that closes your chickens in at night and opens it up in the morning, do it. I still think you should go out there every day. Get your eggs, dump off your compost, whatever. But let's say something, survival podcast, preparedness. Let's say something happens and you end up having to sit with your your spouse like I did a few years, well, a few years ago, over 10 years ago now. You have to end up sitting with your spouse for almost a week straight at a hospital. Well, all that shit just takes care of it. There might be a bunch of extra eggs there. Some of them might go bad. You know, the chickens might eat a couple, whatever it is. But it will not die. Everything will be okay. And the more you automate, the more that becomes true. So that when you want to be a hunter-gatherer and take a vision quest, which means go to the beach and drink margaritas for a week, you can. So automate anything and everything that you can on your homestead. Also accept seasonal limits. If you know, I mean, people are trying to grow things so out of season that it makes it work. Now, I'm all for greenhouses, road covers, as long as it can be easy. One of the things I'm going to experiment with, I'm starting to fix up all these new beds, and I'm starting my plants and all. I'm like, how can I make this easier? So I can go get some cheap-ass glass fish bowls, stick a pepper seed right where I want it to grow, put the bowl over it. It warms it up, it grows, it gives a little bit of frost protection. When it gets big enough, take the bowl off, no more work. Just need a place to store all the bowls. That type of thing. That's... That's a seasonal limit. You're extending the season, but you're also not trying to make it more complicated than it needs to be. And grow what survives or create an environment where it can. I mean, I think it's awesome that Sepp Holzer, if you don't know who this guy is, an amazing farmer farming in the Austrian Alps, grows freaking lemon tree in the Austrian Alps. I think that's amazing. It's a testament to what heat trapping and all this other shit can do. And you know what? It's a publicity stunt. He ain't making no money off of lemons. It's a publicity stunt. That's great. Fine. Woo for you. But in our daily lives, grow what survives. I talked about it earlier with if you have a place where your tomatoes are constantly ate up with blight, and it's just frustrating, and you're just tired of it, grow tomatillos. Tomatillo verde and purple tomatillos, they, will, they won't do exactly the same thing a tomato does, but it stands in for a lot of the culinary uses of a tomato. In some ways, I think they're far superior, and they're immune to blight. And if you live in the South, they grow like crazy. You know, so figure out what grows here. When, when we, we were working with Kevin and Charlie's farm at Perma Ethos in West Virginia, you could take a tomato. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. You could take a, a tomato, smash it in your hand, throw it on the ground, kick dirt over it, and come back in like three weeks, and there'd be, you know, one of them would become the dominant plant, and there'd be a tomato that was already stick around as your freaking thumb. Well, grow tomatoes there. There's places where it's so easy to grow potatoes, and there's a place where they all they do is get blight and scab. Don't grow potatoes there. I bet you'll find the place where you're, your, you know, your kind of your Irish style potato, if you want to call me your Andean potatoes, don't do well. I bet you sweet potatoes to grow the sweet potato. It's a better plant anyway. It's got a low, lower glycemic index. It grows big, tastes amazing, and the greens are edible. Where the greens of a regular potato are poisonous. Why are you killing yourself 
To grow a plant that you get one harvest a year from, when you could be growing a plant that you get multiple harvests a year from, it's easier. Grow what survives, and if you're not doing that, then create an environment where it can. I'm going to probably grow some hops this year. I tried it when I first got here, followed my own rule. It was a pain in the ass. Then it turns out that, that my buddy David's buddy, uh, Toby, and his buddy Matt, uh, that are down in Austin, grew hops out the ass. You know how they did it? Ebb and flow, bed and aquaponics system. Okay, well, we'll do that. No problem. If that's what, if they grow, if, so now I know that I have an environment where I can cheat the climate. But I'm only going to grow something, and if, I'll, I'll try anything. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to take and dedicate my life to making it survive. I'll buy it. It's stun, right? Sheer, total, utter neglect. I says like stun uh. That's what I should call it. Almost. So Mark Shepard created the stun technique. Plant a couple thousand trees, six inches apart. Let them go. Two years later, get out the chainsaw. I cut out all the ones that look like shit. Two more years, cut out all the other ones that look like shit. And there's ways we determine that when they flower or how young they produce and stuff. But that's just the basic concept. Well, here we're doing this on a much smaller homestead scale. So we'll take something, a new plant, a new species, a new variety, and we'll plant three or four or five or six of them. And if they do like crap, until we find a way that makes them do well, well, that's it. That It had its run. It's a good. It's over. And then do forage and hunt off-site. Even though... I've said that we're really talking about what we can do on our own property today. Be learning to forage and hunt and fish and gather from the, the, the resources that are publicly available to you is incredibly valuable. And there is some of that we can do here in Texas. But, man, I miss some of what I did as a kid in Pennsylvania. Because, I mean, there were just, you know, in the spring, it started out, first it was the wild strawberries. Then it was the blueberries. You know, and then the the, the 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 trout in the streams was just unbelievable. You went into summer and you kind of drifted away from it, but then you had the fall hunting and the mushrooms and tea berries and all kinds of really great stuff. So learn what's available. And I mean, it, it's amazing. I've done a lot of shows on fishing. How much we are freaking spoiled rotten. You know, Jeff Long says that carp are the most eaten fish in the world. Do you think it's because they're good? It's because they're available. The, the number one fish that people fish for in England is carp because they're available. There's almost no place in America where you can't drive an hour or less and fish for something edible. That's pretty amazing. That you have access to as a private citizen. Like it's just publicly available. So make sure you determine these things that are available. Get out there, hunt, fish, forage, and gather, and add that back into what, what you're doing. And what I want to kind of conclude with today is why this method works the best for the most people. That's what I said at the beginning. It's because it's doable and it fits our modern lives. It, most people don't have 10 hours a week to dedicate to gardening and homesteading. My grandfather was able to produce a tremendous amount of abundance out of his garden for, for a lot of years longer than he was physically able to because we moved there. And before we moved there, I was up there all summer long, even when we were still living in Florida. So he had a worker, a, a, a kid, you know, a teenager, a tweenager, then a teenager, right? And I like to do the stuff. 
And what is it for a kid to dedicate that kind of time? Before the days of, you know, freaking Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. There's nothing. But the, the, the person that works 50 or 60 hours a week, wants to go to his kid's soccer game and his daughter's volleyball game and keep his wife happy so they stay married, probably doesn't have, you know, all weekend to bust ass in the garden. And maybe they, there's certain times of year for that, you know, bust ass phase where, you know, for the next couple of weeks we're going to do that, but they don't have it all year long. But everybody has 10 or 15 minutes a day. You can cre If you don't have it, you can create it. You can get up 10 minutes earlier. That's it. Boom, there it is. There's your 10 minutes. Get out and take a walk around your property before you go to work. First of all, you'll be less likely to punch somebody in the face when you get there. Number one. Number two, you will start to actually cultivate your own food, and you will eat healthier, and you will live longer. That 10 minutes will pay you big dividends. But you'll be able to actually get this stuff done. Take five minutes after dinner. Take another walk. And when you see something that needs doing that's easy, that you can do right now, do it right now. This is how hunter-gatherers live. Like, hell, laid around on my ass, told stories, woke up with a big belly full of meat, took a dump, made sure the kids were good for the day, getting kind of hungry, ate some leftovers for breakfast, time to go out in the woods. Oh, look. Berries are starting to produce, but they're not quite ripe yet. I'll remember that for next week. Oh, look, there's a sloth climbing up a tree. They're slow and stupid. What are we eating for dinner tonight? Roasted sloth. Why? That's what was there. And I did enough, and we got dinner for the night, so we're done. You think I'm kidding? This is how these traditional societies function. And it makes perfect sense. What world do we live in where we think the human being is supposed to work eight to ten hours a day? That that's our that's our mission in life. That's our that's our purpose. But that's what we're supposed to do. Doing something that and God knows the majority of what people do for work anymore. If they didn't do it, do you know what would happen? Nothing. And I know some of you are a little bit mad at me, like my job's important. Maybe it is, but the majority of people. Nothing would really happen, especially on the grand scheme of things. The earth wouldn't stop spinning. You know, the, the volcanoes wouldn't swallow themselves. The oceans wouldn't dry up if you didn't do your job. It makes me think of the show Friends and uh, the character Chandler Bing. He's like, I better get to work because if I don't enter those numbers, well, it doesn't really matter. We have such, and even when it does matter, like, well, so what you do enables shipping so that somebody can get their stuff. I'm glad you do that. I get stuff. Right, but in in the grand scheme of things, most of us don't feel fulfilled by it. We know that even if what we do is important, that if we went away, they'd replace us. We we tell ourselves fantasies like, well, no one would ever work as hard as me. Someone might work less than you. Someone might work harder than you. As long as the job gets done, it doesn't really affect the price of tea in China, does it? See, and we intrinsically know this. Hunter gatherers had a a very high rate of personal happiness because they spent most of their time with their family and the actions they took had purpose. 
So we can't eliminate the need to do certain things to fit in and blend with modern society. Everybody has to work for a living today unless you're independently wealthy. Hell, even though I love what I do, I have to get up every day and produce content for this show or eventually you guys will say, why am I giving this jerk my money and stop you know, supporting me? As well you should. But when we start to understand what we intrinsically are and we put a little bit into that of our lives every day, a lot of things happen. Again, we're less likely to punch a coworker and get fired or sued. You know, we're less likely to freaking run our car into a, a diner or something like that because we, we I'm serious to a degree with that. I'm also making a joke. But we also start to figure out like, well, if I can do this, what else can I do? And we just take a little bit more of our independence back at a time. And we do it in a way where our lifestyle adjusts to this. And as we do that, our life just gets a little bit better at a time. And it's amazing what happens over a year or two or five. And the, again, the reason it's the best approach for the most people. There are people who this is not the best approach for. The reason it's the best approach for the most people is it fits the lifestyle of most people into a way that they can do it without a gigantic altering of their lives. We'll start out with this one little bed. We'll plan it. We'll start managing the way Jack says. We'll get some chickens. We'll keep them over here in this little coop and run solution. Hey, we could have two coop, two runs to the one coop and do the victory garden thing. Now we're doing that. Hey, along the outside of this, we could plant some fruit trees or some berry plants, and they'll take the excess nutrient out from the run, and they'll grow really well and provide shade for the chickens. And that doesn't really take a lot of work. And if we automate the door, like Jack said, with this one little $10 part on Amazon, Then the chickens are let out every morning. When we go out there, they're out clucking to greet us instead of angry that we slept in a little bit on Saturday. Best approach for the most people. So hopefully you enjoyed today's show. I thought it would be a good change-up. We've been in some really heavy topics lately. Um, frankly, I'm, I'm very dismayed at the way people are treating each other right now. Um, I really am. And, and I think it's time for us to heal ourselves. And, and in, in a lot of ways... This is a step toward healing ourselves as human beings, and we can't heal ourselves as a nation until we start healing ourselves as human beings. So I hope you got a lot out of today's show. On that note, if you, if you do like the show and you like the work that we do and you want to support us, there's a painless way to do that, and that is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go to a page of the Survival Podcast workshop, uh, website where I keep all of my reviews on Amazon. They're all broken out by categories, or you can just see them by time by clicking the most current reviews. And if you do that today, you'll see our item of the day today is an item I've brought back around. I've reviewed it before. It is like having a third hand, for metal stuff anyway. Uh, it's a magnetic tool uh, holding armband. These things are fantastic. They're made by a company called Racco. They're about 11 bucks. You put this thing on your wrist, and it's got a bunch of magnets in it. So if you're you know, drilling uh, and, and, and putting a bunch of screws into some project that you're working on, you just slap some screws on your arm. But the bigger thing is, like, you know, if you're, you, you drill in a pilot hole, and you're going to swap out to a screwdriver bit, that drill bit will stick on there while you do that because... All these tool manufacturers seem hell-bent on taking away the little holders for your screwdriver bits. They all used to have one. Now the newer ones don't. Just stuff like that. It's a great tool. And again, for, for, for 13 bucks, it's like growing a third hand. 
And uh, they're really cool. And for those, you know, you have people in your life, handyman type, homesteader type stuff that you're looking for a gift for. This is a great gift. It's one of those things that people are like, why didn't I think of that when they see it? Or how did I not know that this existed? Again, the company's called Racco that makes the ones I like. They're about 13 bucks. You can find them at tspaz.com and there. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, start scrolling down. Assuming you're listening to this uh, podcast anytime near when it was recorded, you'll see it there. And you can always support us by doing what? Just do your online shopping through tspaz.com. As long as you go there first, you will help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. On that note, let's get to our song of the day today. You know, I kind of alluded to um, the things that are going on right now, especially with like the, the gun control debate. And I've, I've talked a, a ton uh, lately about things going on in our school system where children are, are, are honest to God, killing themselves in record numbers and how that's related to um, the school shootings. And I've, I've thought a lot about what we can do to change that. And bullying is a huge problem. The sheer number of children that grow up in single-parent households without male guidance, I think, is another uh, huge issue. But I don't think any one of these one things are the problem. It's a totality. It's the way our school systems are run and things like that. But I think it's also, like, what do our children value? Today's song is called Ballad of the Alamo by Marty Robbins. It's an oldie. And it's the story of the Alamo. When John Adams said this one to me, he said, Our children can learn more by listening to this song about the events around the Alamo than they will ever teach them in school about the Alamo. It's pretty much. It's, 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 but it, when I think, when, I, when he said that, I thought, well, that's exactly what I learned about the Alamo when I was a kid. And, and I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's a conflict for me to some degree. Because a lot of these nostalgic looks back at military battles and stuff like that are, are very much an homage to the state. But when you listen to the story here, you realize that in, in most of these instances where men lay down their lives for others, it's individuals. It's not the state. You know, when you, when you listen to this song and you get the numbers in your head, 185 men volunteered to defend the Alamo. And then they were all told, we may not get out of this. The people we're waiting on may not show up. Here's a line in the sand. You want to walk away, walk across the line now and walk away. Or stand with us. 185 men, not a single one, walked across that line. They stood arm in arm and held over and over and over and over again and fought back and beat back a force of 5,000. 185 stood against 5,000, eventually could not hold any longer. And every single one of them died, laid down their life in defense of their comrades. You know what? I did learn that in school. And I did hear about things like that on TV, even though there were only like six channels when I was a kid. And my parents talked about stuff like this. And not just the Alamo, in many different places. These people that stood and risked their own life were the heroes of the day. Not freaking Kanye West or freaking Kim Kardashian. 
And there's an important thing there that I think is getting left out. It's not just that these people that are seen as heroes by our children today are idiots, and they are, and morally bankrupt, and they are. It's what was lost when these type of people stopped being our heroes, when kids stopped growing up and wanting to be an astronaut or a cowboy. If you are someone who will give your life to defend the life of another, you're very unlikely to want to take the life of an innocent. Because clearly you value life so much that you would be willing to risk or lay down your own in defense of another. And if you grow up in a society where that is the ideal that is heroic, you're going to have very few people taking the lives of innocents. We've lost so much. And there is no one answer. There's many, and many places to repair damage. But one might just be a real look at history and a respect for those who are willing to lay down their lives so that others might live. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. In the town of San Antonio, there's a fortress all in ruins that the weeds have overgrown. You may look in vain for crosses and you'll never see a one. But sometimes between the setting and the rising of the sun, you can hear a ghostly bugle as the men go marching by. You can hear them as they answer to that roll call in the sky. Colonel Travis, Davy Crockett, and 180 more. Captain Dickinson, Jim Bowie, present and accounted for. Back in 1836, Houston said to Travis, Get some volunteers and go, fortify the Alamo. Well, the men came from Texas and from old Tennessee. And they joined up with Travis just to fight for the right to be free. Indian scouts with squirrel guns, men with muzzle loaders, stood together, heel and toe, to defend the Alamo. You may ne'er see your loved ones, Travis told them that day. Those who want to can leave now, those who fight to the death, let them stay. In the sand he drew a line with his army saber. Out of 185, not a soldier crossed the line with his banners a-dancing. In the dawn's golden light, Santa Anna came prancing on a horse that was black as the night. Said an officer to tell Travis to surrender. Travis answered with a shell and a rousing rebel yell. Santa Anna turned scarlet, played to Quelo, he roared. I will show them no quarter, everyone will be put to the sword. One hundred and eighty-five, holding back five thousand. Five days, six days, eight days, ten. Travis held and held again. Then he sent for replacements for his wounded and lame. But the troops that were coming never came, never came, never came. Twice he charged, then blew recall on the fatal third time. Santa Anna breached the wall, and he killed them one and all. Now the bugles are silent, and there's rust on each sword, and the small band of soldiers 
lie asleep in the arms of the Lord. In the southern part of Texas, near the town of San Antonio, like a statue on his fiddle rides a cowboy all alone. And he sees the cattle grazing where a century before Santa and his guns were blazing and the cannons used to roar. And his eyes turn sort of misty and his heart begins to glow and he takes his hat off slowly to the men of Alamo. To the thirteen days of glory at the siege of Alamo.